Open it. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where it's audience participation time in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 38, which begins with Master weeping over Blaster, and it ends with Auntie leaping down into Thunderdome. Happy hump day, Julia. We are halfway through the week. Excellent. We start off today with Master just bent over the now still body of his former cohort and pawn and main form of transportation, the only other person in his life that really meant anything to him and is now gone. And it's very sad. And you don't really feel very sad. I really don't. In fact, in response to Master sitting there saying, no, 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 I thought people really say no in movies a lot, don't they? So I found a couple of lists. <laughs> on different websites, you know, that list off different examples of people saying and yelling the word no, often for prolonged periods of time in movies. So I found two of them, one from ifc.com, the other one from the droid you're looking for.com, which is actually just tdylf.com, but that's beside the point. So the IFC list and the the droid you're looking for list. They actually have a couple of crossovers, but I'll start with the IFC one. They kind of rank it by a top 10, but I don't really think the order matters because number 10 is from the end of The Evil Dead 2. That's where Bruce Campbell gets to the end of the movie. He drops through a portal and he lands in medieval time and he's just surrounded by peasants. And so he raises his shotgun and chainsaw hand to the sky and screams, no, because he's fallen through time. They follow that up with the number nine entry from A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which I haven't seen before, so I don't have any real context for the clip, but apparently Freddy is defeated at the end by someone just screaming no at him. It was weird. I don't know. They go on to talk about the Hugh Jackman movie from 2004 called Van Helsing, where he transforms into a werewolf. Spoiler alert, I guess, for a movie that's more than 10 years old, but apparently when he's a werewolf, he yells no, and that was pretty memorable. Have you ever seen Muppets in Space? No. Because that's number seven. <laughs> Apparently Gonzo has a pretty emotional howl that he does. The next one on the list is from the Tom Hanks movie called The Burbs. There is a The Burbs minute, but I've never seen The Burbs to begin with, so I, I haven't really sought it out. But I think Tom Hanks has a good shouting no in that. Of course, number five is from Pet Cemetery, where there's another yell. Haven't seen that one either. Okay, most of these so far I am very unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. There was a good one in X-Men The Last Stand and X-Men Origins Wolverine. Now, you've seen X-Men The Last Stand. It's the one where Jean Grey goes crazy with the Phoenix Force. Yes. You remember that at the end when Hugh Jackman stabs her and he's like, no. Oh, yes. I remember that. Yep. Okay. Because there's the no from that scene. And then, of course, there's the no from when he discovers that his 
fiance, wife, whatever her relationship to him was when he comes back to their cabin and she's dead. He has another screaming no in that one. Number three on the IFC list is another movie that I've never seen before. Spike Lee's 1992 Jungle Fever, where at the end, Wesley Snipes is walking down the street and he's propositioned by a prostitute. And the movie ends by him embracing this prostitute and just screaming to the heavens, no. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of context there, but having not witnessed that particular Spike Lee joint, it's lost on me. What can I say? <laughs> it's a pretty dramatic scene, though. There is another one from Death Wish 5, The Face of Death, where Charles Bronson is screaming no. And the number one examples on the IFC oh, no. list, it's Star Wars. Between Empire Strikes Back, Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi, all of those instances of people shouting no. Okay. That list was very disappointing. Yeah, not a lot of recognizable ones. And I'm not sure if that is more indicative of our movie watching habits or just whoever wrote that. Mm -hmm. I feel like there wasn't a lot of overlap. The, the droids you're looking for list is a lot more recognizable, I think, because they start off the list with Back to the Future. There's that opening scene where Doc is shot down by the Libyans and Marty yells no and has to jump into the DeLorean. I mean, how can you forget that one? Yeah, that's a pretty good one. The next one on their list is from the movie Seven. Oh. I'll give you one guess as to what scene it's taken from. Yeah, okay. I can get behind that. It's from the box. <laughs> and they go from Seven, which is so dramatic and so serious. And then the next one they put on the list is from Austin Powers, The International Man of Mystery in 1997, <laughs> with that one worker guy. Oh, with the steamroller thing? Mm -hmm. Yes. Just standing in the middle of that room, yelling, stop. And then as the steamroller slowly makes its way all the way across the room, and then right before it squishes him, he yells no. <laughs> so it's great. There's a couple of overlaps that we're going to see in this second list because they also mention the no from the end of Evil Dead 2, which honestly, it's how can you not? And then they also give special acknowledgement to Darth Vader's no from the end of Revenge of the Sith, Luke Skywalker's no from The Empire Strikes Back, and then depart genres once again to A Christmas Story, the scene where Ralphie goes to speak to Santa Claus and Santa Claus denies him and then pushes him down the slide. <laughs> the list continues. There's Frodo's no from when Gandalf falls off the bridge in The Fellowship of the Ring. How was that not on the other list? I know, right? I mean, that scene was pretty heavy and Frodo is shouting no and being held back by Aragorn. Like, yeah, come on. That's good. Yeah. The, the droid you're looking for list goes on to mention the Kentucky Fried movie which haven't seen that one. It's from 1977, the same year that Star Wars came out. But one of the guys, I guess, gets sent to Detroit. And so apparently that's the worst possible thing that could happen to a guy in Kentucky is getting sent to Detroit. I don't know. <laughs> they mention The Godfather Part 3, where apparently Al Pacino has a pretty epic no yell. I am not proudly stating that I've never seen any of The Godfather movies. It's no. definitely a huge gap in my repertoire. <laughs> Those movies, they're always on our list of movies to see. They just never make it to the top. Right. It's yeah. that sort of thing. And then at the very end of the list that we're talking about, they mentioned Jungle Fever 
again from 1991. So, and that was their number one? Uh, that droid you're looking for did not number their list. Oh, okay. It's just, hey, here's a bunch of really good ones. Exactly. Okay, cool. There's a couple of instances from serious movies and lighthearted movies and situations where, yeah, I haven't seen most of those movies, but pretty sure a lot of those no's would elicit a lot better of a response from me than what Master is doing here. I am really not sympathetic to him right now. No. Now I hear every time I say the word no. I'm acutely aware of it mm -hmm. now that we've been through that list. <laughs> so you definitely say the word yes a lot more often than the word no. Our listeners may not be aware of it because I don't usually leave them in. <laughs> well, no, I feel like I can't say anything. You can use other replacer words like yeah, right, mm-hmm, things like that. It's just when you say yes, it just triggers something in me. I don't know what it is. <laughs> It's just, I go back to the playback and I listen to it. I just, ah, I don't want to talk baseball. <laughs> <laughs> this is more you have to edit out. Exactly. We've already run through how many minutes just talking about how many things that are not Mad Max related just to fill time. <laughs> People are going to hate the beginning of this episode, but there's really not a ton to talk about. So we're going to push on either way. We depart from having to look at Master to catch up with Max, who walks over to the door to the Thunderdome and he says, open it to the guard and the guard does not move. So Max puts his hands on the door. The guard doubles down on his grip and just refuses to let him out. I understand why he doesn't let him out. At this point, everything is so messed up that he is probably waiting for a signal from Auntie that it's okay or not okay. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, two men entered, one man has died. By those rules, Max should be free. Yeah, I think I'm more bothered by the fact that Max has gone back on a deal that he made. Max spent a lot of time in Road Warrior making deals keeping up his side of the deal and expecting compensation for doing so. Based on what we've seen of Max in this series, when he makes a deal, he keeps his word, despite the fact that it might be dangerous or out of his way, just so that he can survive to the day after, the right. week after, the month after. This is the point from Monday that we're just going to have to agree to disagree because this wasn't the deal. The deal wasn't to kill an innocent person. The deal was to kill Blaster. Yeah, we, we definitely need to we, disagree on that because yeah. I don't feel like innocence or guilt was implied in the deal. And that's just how it's going to be. Mm hmm. But I definitely appreciate the idea that this guard is not going to make an executive decision without an executive order. Right. So Pig Killer pipes up mm -hmm. right about here. And he makes the point that you just made that two men have entered. One man should be allowed to leave. Pig Killer is pointing out to everybody, hey, by the rules of Thunderdome, Max should be allowed to go free because Max is of the two men that entered the one man that is still able to leave. Okay, I'm glad that you said it that way because I kind of heard it the opposite way. I heard it as a call for more fighting. Mm -hmm. And that didn't really make any sense to me. It felt like a betrayal of pig killers. We don't know pig killer very well and we kind of theorize that maybe he's crazy and I think that was a pretty good theory. Yeah. But he was friendly to Max. So why all of a sudden would he turn against Max and insist that Max keep fighting? And the reaction that Auntie has where she gets all 
bubbly under the surface gets really, really mad and makes a dramatic move. That didn't make any sense to me. But now that you point it from the opposite point of view, that pig killer is saying, hey, two men entered, one man gets to leave. The other one can't leave because he's dead. So the one man gets to leave. Makes so much more sense to me. Yeah, I don't know why it took me so long because that idea that I said is actually a fairly recent idea that I've had about this movie. For the longest time, I thought that Pig Killer starting up that chant was exactly like you described, a call for additional fighting. The idea that, hey, we were promised blood, where's our blood type of thing. Right. As if Pig Killer was calling for Max to now fight Master. Yes. And when you throw a third person into the ring that is so defined by the number of people in it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you throw off this whole idea of two men enter, one man leaves. So... Okay, one man is dead, but that man was replaced by another man. So now there's still two men in there. So by the simplistic logic of this group of people, only one man in the ring is allowed to still be alive. Yeah. So that's what I thought he was going for. Yeah, I liked the idea of Pig Killer basically calling for Max to be released. But I think one of the reasons I spent so long being confused about this, and I mean, I'm not holding myself and be like, yes, I was confused. How great of me. No, I'm not trying to make it sound like that. But I think one of the reasons I was so confused for so long is because it could also be construed as pig killer saying, hey, auntie, we've had an anomaly. The rule is very simple. Two men enter, one man leaves. Now we've got people jumping in and out of the dome, iron bars getting involved. The rules are getting weird. All we know is two men enter, one man leaves. So what gives? Right. And because their rules are so simplistic and because there has been this anomaly, the people represented by Pig Killer don't know what to do. Yeah. They don't know what to expect. They don't know what to cry out for. So Pig Killer seems to be reverting to the thing that he does know. Right. But I I actually really like the idea that he's calling for Max's release. Mm. He is pointing out that two men did enter and one man gets to leave. Because everyone is very plainly seeing that Blaster is now dead and Max is trying to walk away. He is trying to fulfill the second part of that chant. And maybe everyone sitting outside the dome agrees with the idea that Pig Killer has that Max should be allowed to walk. It might just be that they're chanting because that's what they do. Mm Mm-hmm. But everybody on that dome starts chanting along. And it gets very, very strong. Oh, yeah. And do you think almost violent? Well, the thing about this chanting is that not only does it grow to encompass the entire crowd, it gets louder as it goes. It also gets faster Mm -hmm. as it goes. There's a sort of frenzy building up. And you can kind of see as Auntie is leaning forward intently and looking around so much, she can tell that she might have a riot brewing. Yes. And a riot is a terrible thing. It is. It would completely destroy their way of life. Because there are nowhere near enough guards to control everybody in Bartertown. No. If a riot broke out. And the whole reason why people behave is because of Thunderdome. And if you misbehave, if you start a fight, you're going to have to 
take it to Thunderdome where it will be to the death so people don't fight. Mm-hmm. So if everybody is fighting, you can't send everybody to Thunderdome. It's going to completely destroy the whole system exactly. if there's a riot. So Auntie is definitely at a delicate crossroads here. She is, and you can see it in her face. She's strategizing. Mm-hmm. She's realizing what is going on and its potential and strategizing on how to handle it. Yeah, because the crowd wants Max set free. That's the consensus that they've more or less come to. Yeah, I think so. But Auntie doesn't want that to happen because Max openly defied her. Yes, she needs to take care of that as well, just as... She needs to take care of this potential riot to maintain the law that she has worked so hard to establish. It's just as important for her to take care of Max in the right way, very strategically and very delicately. And she's kind of working at a political disadvantage because Ironbar shooting Blaster the way he did is a pretty long shadow. It is. It is. And... It really defeats the purpose of the whole setup that she had with Max. Yeah. The whole point was to keep her own hands clean and her people's hands clean. And then Ironbar just steps up and gets blood all over himself. Yeah. Do you think Ironbar killed Blaster because Auntie wanted him to? Or do you think he just made that decision on his own? Do you think he had orders? Well, I like the idea of Auntie having a backup plan. Because on Monday, that disappointed me greatly that she made no plan if things went wrong. Mm -hmm. But maybe Iron Bar was her backup plan. Maybe. I think we'll be able to judge that better as we see more of Iron Bar in the last section of the movie. We see more of him. Yeah. And we get to see more of him acting a little bit more independently and we'll be able to see what sort of decisions he makes when he's acting on his own Mm -hmm. yeah i think next friday not this upcoming friday but the friday afterwards Mm -hmm. minute 42 we're going to see more of iron bar operating on his own using his own specific judgment and based on what we're going to see there and this is me speaking as someone who has seen this movie multiple times we're not going strictly by the oh we're only watching this one minute at a time we don't know what's going to happen model I feel like few movies by minute podcasts do that model, but based on how he acts down the road and how Auntie has to chastise him because of those actions, I kind of feel like Iron Bar killed Blaster without Auntie's express and written permission. That this is a course of action that he chose to take because the situation wasn't resolving fast enough. That leads me to another question of why he was allowed to keep his position then. That was a huge mistake. He murdered a man in cold blood, standing right next to the leader of their society. Why wasn't he punished? Why was he allowed to keep his position? And we see after some time passes at the climax of the movie, he's still in the same position. It's not even like they saved his punishment for later. Days down the road, he is still in his position of power. I love it when you talk about someone getting fired from a position in a post-apocalyptic setting. Well, fired as in killed. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's funny, the, the concept of it. I always get a little chuckle out of it. 
I think the important thing that we're looking at here is that Auntie's next move is incredibly important because as the camera is moving around, like we're seeing nearly every angle of this dome, every degree as we go around it is just covered with people chanting, two men enter, one man leave. And Auntie gets to the point where in order to get everybody's attention, she flings herself, like she jumps, but it's more accurate to say that she flings herself from her platform down to the ground. Interesting detail, this is the first time that Auntie has touched solid ground. The first time oh, yeah. we saw her in this movie, she was in the penthouse. And in order to get from the penthouse to the dome, she rode her zipline chair. Yes, good point. Another thing about Auntie that I notice in this shot is her shoes, which is not something I usually notice on people, but she's wearing like flats, like ballet flats type of thing. Oh, Like little slip-ons okay. and whatnot. I didn't notice. I think because... Her motions and how she behaves once she lands down in Thunderdome between the very end of this minute and the beginning of next minute reminds me so much of the music video for the song that played at the opening of the movie mm -hmm. with, uh, what's his name, the saxophone guy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the living. Yes, that music video. She is wearing high heels and she spends a good portion of that music video walking backwards in circles with the camera following her. I think they're high-heeled boots, even. Yes. So her motions and the motions of the camera are fairly similar in this scene when she lands on Thunderdome that I just kind of pictured her wearing high-heeled boots. Yeah. I think most women in a post-apocalyptic setting, this is kind of a sci-fi thing, when you set women in the future, they're wearing just ridiculous high-heel shoes or whatever other types of shoes you see a lot. I They're either wearing cannot, boots or high heels. Cannot imagine why you would. Oh, hey, speaking of high heels and post-apocalyptic setting, we watched those two episodes of Dragula. Oh, yeah. The they, ones that uh, John suggested that we watch. Yes. So we watched them oh. and it was an experience. A note about reality competition shows specifically about drag. They focus a lot more on the interpersonal relationships of the combatants, more so than the craft of the outfits and the makeup and things like that. Yeah, we At didn't least... get to see any of the work of creating their outfits or even doing their makeup, which yeah. was amazing. The makeup and the outfits that they prepared for Very their photo shoots for Wasteland Weekend were absolutely amazing and stunning. One of them in particular, and I don't recall which one it was. I think it was the fourth one to do their photo shoot. She was wearing big high heels, very drag-like, very dramatic. She was having a hard time standing up doing her model poses. Mm -hmm. And her heels kept falling off the rocks. And even in one of her finished photos, which were absolutely gorgeous, you could see her ankle was turned at quite an odd angle. Yeah. The photographers on that show get some amazing shots. And the outfits were stunning. It's just that specific type of show. I spent a lot of time skipping over parts because I don't watch reality competition shows for interpersonal relationships. I'm not interested in personal drama. <laughs> So they walked around Wasteland Weekend for a little while. So we got to see lots of the costumes and the cars, and that was fantastic. And then their outfits, 
that they did were also fantastic. And I wish that we had gotten to see them working on them. Yeah. That would have been fascinating. That would have been great. And doing their hair and their makeup would have been very interesting. I am not going to sit here and recommend that everybody run out and watch those two episodes for the Wasteland Weekend content. But it is there. There's a lot of it. And there are some pretty cool things to see. And the whole thing is up on YouTube. Oh, absolutely. You can watch the entire two-part episode, and it's like 45 minutes per part. So you're looking at a good hour and a half of stuff here. Now, granted, most of that is dramatic posing and catty back and forth, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but your point is well noted that when you're in a post-apocalypse you got to find some sensible footwear. And there are really good examples of people not wearing sensible footwear and the immediate effects of choosing the wrong type of shoes. <laughs> Although choosing the right shoe also served Johnny the boy very poorly. <laughs> he was going out of his way to find a better pair of shoes and it ended up being his demise. I hardly think you can blame that situation on the pair of shoes that... He was trying on. Well, like that's why he was stopped there. The shoes were just an accessory to that situation. I think. Well, his, yes, they were. But his, shoes are just accessories. His well, downfall was when he decided to stop for those shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's this whole thing. About Auntie and her leadership style. Mm -hmm. We have seen her rule of law, and it has been pointed out to us very obviously and frequently, especially by the collector, that this place has laws and the people are very into those laws and everything runs smoothly because of those laws. And that is half of leadership and it's a very important half, but there's another half. It's how you deal with emergencies and crises. Yeah. And that's the part of her leadership skills that we are going to see right now mm -hmm. is she's got this crisis brewing, this uprising brewing, and she has to take care of it fast and decisive and how well she does that is going to say a lot about her as a leader. But in order for her to take control of the situation, she needs to get in everyone's line of sight. And so that's, I think, why she jumps down. She's not going to address people from on high. She's going to get down in the thick of it all. So she jumps down and she's standing in the middle of the Thunderdome and she shouts out, what's this? What's this? Like a disappointed mom. <laughs> Or I guess an aunt who's looking after the kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and really her shouting what's this is how we end this minute. Mm -hmm. She's going to say it a third time on Friday. We'll get to that when we get to it. Because Auntie is going to address the crowd. And with the help of another rules chant, she's going to more or less get them back on her side. And then we get to see the return of Dr. Dealgood as he explains how life is just a series of wagers that we make as Max faces the wheel. And I feel like you got to say the wheel with that much gravitas to it because the wheel is an important thing here in Bartertown. So sure, I guess so. We'll get to hang out with the wheel and see how important that is. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Ire by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max 
Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 38 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time. Oh!